Let's lift our hearts in prayer and thanksgiving. You are the faithful God. There is no one like you, Lord. The God who makes and keeps his promises to a thousand generations. And before the mountains were born and the oceans were formed, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God, our God. So we lift our voices to you. We lift our hearts to you. We lift our hands to you. And we say, great are you, Lord, and greatly to be praised. Great is thy faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. Bless the Lord. Amen. Amen. Let's give him thanks. Amen. Let's be seated together. My name is David Cassidy. I'm the lead pastor here, and I'm not being introduced this morning by Ron Tobias. <laughs> Inside joke. If you're uh, if you're new with us today, we uh, especially welcome you, and you've come on a great day. Not only in which we honor our dads, uh, but we give worship to the everlasting Father, who called to Himself a, a, a man who was deeply troubled in soul, a man named Saul of Tarsus, and turned his life around and made him a father in the faith, the Christian faith, to countless millions who down through the centuries have studied his words. And I'm so glad that that happened 2,000 years ago and not now, because if it had happened now, then maybe he would have had to text Ephesians or send an email. There's a lost art of letter writing, which is really sad in our generation. The great English poet John Donne said that more than kisses, letters mingle souls. And the letters that we have that come down to us from the centuries are a remarkable testament not only to the love of God in Jesus, but the love that people shared together in this great Christian faith for which they were willing to lay down their lives to follow Jesus who had loved them to life through the power of his death and resurrection. And Paul wrote many letters. But in, in this letter there's something unique and different and it's the only letter he wrote to a community of believers in a place called Ephesus, a place as we discovered last week that is not unlike our own city, where he did not offer correction. I mean, in Galatians, he, he says some hard things. In Corinthians, some hard things, some real face palm moments. What are you guys doing? But this letter doesn't offer correction. It offers, interestingly, right at the start, and we looked at this last week, overflowing worship. And then it comes into what we're going to look at this morning in glorious prayer as he bows his knees before God. It's a letter that's overflowing with worship for God and prayer to God because, as our series title notes, Paul knew that God was the God who does exceedingly, and he says this in chapter 3, exceeding abundantly beyond everything you could ask or imagine. So the title of our series is Beyond Our Imagination, that God is the God who has moved in ways across the millennia that have reshaped nations, that have transformed people. And this God who did all of those things, who parted the Red Sea, 
who came as Jesus Christ and conquered death and paid the price for sin, this God is your God. And this God, your God, is not retired. He is active and will still do for us abundantly beyond all we could ever ask or imagine. So Paul, after having gone into this anthem of praise to begin this letter, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us. And he goes through the blessings of the Father because he's adopted us and made us his children. And blessings of the Son. In Jesus we have redemption through his blood. And the blessings of the Holy Spirit. Because he has sealed us, protecting us. The good work he began in us will be brought to completion and he'll get us all the way home. After opening with praise and thanks, he then turns to prayer praying for these believers, and that word about the Holy Spirit's work is exactly where Paul's prayer begins. And I want you to think about something for just a minute. What do we pray for? How large and great are our prayers? Now, we need to be engaged with the Lord in prayers that he gives to us in the Scriptures. Now, all matters that, that we have in our life are to be prayed about and lifted up to the Lord, um, you know, but, but sometimes we forget that God is a great God who looks to answer our prayers. And you know, there is nothing so great that God would feel that it was too much for him. Uh, you don't have to worry about trying to pray prayers that are impressive. Like, it's a, like, like the father, after you got done praying, would turn to the son and say, you know, that was a good one. Wow, they're really good at that. It's not that we are trying to impress God with some amazing prayer, but the truth is so often our prayers are confined to only our personal interests and as we perceive our own needs. But imagine for just a second, you could sit down with an apostle, say the apostle Paul and say, okay, these are the things I think my church needs. These are the things I think I need. Paul, what do we need more than anything else? Let's pray for the thing we need more than anything else. And Paul, when he wrote to this church, he said, here are the things I'm praying for you. So let's go to, into a school of prayer this morning with the Apostle Paul. Let's pray along with him. I want to invite you to read with me in Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 15. We move from, we move from praise into prayer. Look at Ephesians 1. Verse 15, for this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened. That you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, which is in accordance with the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heavenly places 
far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And I'll just stop reading there. Paul's getting all carried away. We may get back to the rest of this. So let me add, this is the word of the Lord. (laughs) I want you to notice what Paul does here. He's praying for this church and he says in his prayer, my first thing I know this church needs I bow my knees before the Father, I give thanks for this church, and I'm praying that God would do something. He would give them the Holy Spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of God, opening people's hearts up to the knowledge of God. And you say, well, didn't he just say that we're sealed with the Holy Spirit? We have the Holy Spirit? Well, as Paul will go on to say in this letter, the Holy Spirit comes into our lives But the Holy Spirit continues and keeps coming into our lives that the person who has been born of the Spirit can go on being filled with the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit does a particular work. He opens the eyes of people's hearts. There is an interior seeing, a soul-based seeing that helps us to see God and know who He is and have faith in Jesus. He's praying for the Holy Spirit to bring us into a place where we have the knowledge of God. Now, I know whenever you start talking about the Holy Spirit, people can run off into extremes. At one end of the extreme, you have people who depersonalize the Holy Spirit, and you'll hear them sometimes refer to the Holy Spirit as it, like he's an invisible force. They kind of have Star Wars theology, may the force be with you. And they're just, you know, they don't really know, they don't really have a category for the Holy Spirit. Then at the other end of the spectrum are people who are so incredibly mystical, they kind of expect the Holy Spirit to show up and give them every little guidance, like, like go to the store at 2 o'clock and go into this parking spot. Now, I lived over here in this end of things for quite a while. And when I was a teenager, I, would, I went with a few friends. We were going on a, 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 a witnessing weekend in a church up in South Bend, Indiana. I was at a Methodist church up there. We were going to share our testimonies and work with young people and other members of the congregation. And this was, of course, long before there was anything like GPS. That just didn't exist, you know. Nobody had anything like that. And so you kind of had these directions. And when we got to South Bend, we got lost. Now, a bunch of us started praying for the Holy Spirit to show us where the church was. Oh, Holy Spirit, show us the way. Open our eyes. And we're praying fervently. Thankfully, we had a youth pastor with us who was in the back seat. He was actually smart. And and in the middle of our praying, he had a strong prophetic utterance. All of a sudden, from the back seat came these words. Thus says the Lord. Oh, oh. Thus says the Lord. Stop and ask directions. (laughs) Both of those extremes are outside the spectrum of what Paul prays for here. He's praying for the eyes of our heart to be enlightened, opened up to what he calls the knowledge of God, knowing God. Now that word for knowledge, for people from a Hebrew background, people from a Jewish background, was not the same as philosophical knowledge for people from a a more Gentile or Greek background. This word knowing has a a, a Hebrew equivalent. It's used over in the book of Genesis. And the King James Version politely translated this way, Adam knew Eve and she conceived. Well, you know what that is. 
And that Hebrew word is yada. Now, if you're a Seinfeld fan, you know that word. You know how that, you know how that word was used. You know, Joe met Mary, yada, yada, yada. That's the word. And what Paul is praying for here is the Holy Spirit will bring you into a bonded, unbreakable bond with God himself, where God is no longer somebody you think is off somewhere far away, but somebody who is in you and with you and near you. You have a relationship with him. Religion will give you duties. Religion will give you shame and guilt. But God will liberate your soul and bring you into a personal relationship with himself through Jesus Christ, where you begin the adventure of a lifetime knowing who God is. God being somebody who is real to you. The Bible no longer being like reading somebody else's mail. You begin to have a relationship with him. That's what Jesus came to do. He said, this is eternal life. Knowing God. Being in a relationship with God. Not just coming to a church, but being in a relationship with God. In one of my listening tour meetings I've been doing this month, I, I've heard this story many times, but I'll, I'll tell it the way it was told to me just this last week. A man, I asked the question, what do you love about your church? And he said, I'll tell you what I love about my church. I got saved in this church. I said, oh, tell me the story. He said, well, I came for weeks, week after week, and I'm listening to Pastor Nicholas, and he's preaching the bad news and the good news. And I kept thinking every week, the bad news, the good news, the bad news, the good news. And here he goes again, the bad news and the good news. He said, and then all of a sudden, all of a sudden, I realized that Jesus Christ didn't just die on the cross. Jesus Christ died on the cross for me. And it hit my heart. And I came to faith in Jesus. He said, I've been in church all my life. And I came to faith in Jesus. What an amazing moment. Now, I don't know if you've had a moment just like that. Maybe your conversion has a different shape to it. For some people, there's a sudden awareness of who God is and that he is bringing them to himself. For other people, it's much more gradual. I used to get in all kinds of fights with my dad. My rebellion as a teenager wasn't in, it did not involve drugs and crazy. My, my rebellion was religious. I would get into theological fights with my dad. My, I was raised Lutheran, and we'd get into all kinds. We fought about everything, okay? And one day, I told my dad he was going to hell. That helped a lot in our relationship. I told my dad, you're going to hell because you can't tell me the, the day and the hour you came to Christ. You can't give me the day or the hour. And he just looked at me, and he said, I don't need to know what time dawn was to know the sun's up. That was the end of that fight, and I shut up and stopped arguing with my dad. There may be, for some people, what my dad called halogen bulb conversions. Boom! Lights are on. My dad said he had a dimmer switch conversion where the lights gradually came on. But look what Paul prays for here. I pray the Holy Spirit opens the eyes of your heart, enlightens you to know God. That's the crucial issue. And that knowledge of God has three key areas. The hope of God. The hope of his calling in your life. All right, he's looking for that. He says, I pray that your eyes will be hope, open to the hope of his calling. So the call of God, 
The second thing is the mission of God, and the third thing is the power of God. I want to touch on those very briefly with you this morning. The first one is the call of God. Paul, look at this again here in Ephesians chapter 1. He says, I'm praying that this spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of God, opening your eyes, lighting you up to the hope to which he has called you, the call of God. Now, sometimes when we talk about a person's calling, their vocation, we think of a job that they're supposed to do, a purpose they're supposed to pursue. Nothing wrong with that usage. But the word call is used in the Bible, not just in that vocational sense of a purpose, but of God's activity of bringing you from death to life, calling you to himself. And that when God calls you to himself, he does that with a particular end in view, that through you he's going to be glorified. A great example of this is a friend of Jesus named Lazarus. Lazarus became sick. Jesus got word of it. He delayed his departure to go see his friend, and his friend Lazarus died. When Jesus got there, Lazarus' sisters, friends of Jesus and his family said, Master, if you'd been here, he wouldn't have died. The disciples were deeply troubled by this. Why did Jesus delay? But before they had gone to visit, Jesus said, this sickness is not unto death, it's unto the glory of God. But he died. That's confusing when Jesus says it's not unto death, but then he died. And you go, well, how is God being glorified in this? Well, many of you know how this story turns out. Jesus goes to the tomb where Lazarus is is laid, he's been dead four days, and Jesus says, roll the stone away. And they say, Lord, we shouldn't do that. There'll be a stench. He's been in there four days. Jesus doesn't deny that. He just says, roll the stone away. So they roll the stone away. And Jesus then prays, Father, I thank you that you hear me. Now watch this combination. Father, I thank you that you hear me. Jesus is in prayer. But then, then Jesus does something remarkable. Jesus speaks into that tomb. And he says, Lazarus, come out. One commentator said he had to say his name or every dead person in the mountain would have come out. Lazarus, come out. He called him by name. One day, God called you by name. Out of death, into life, out of darkness, into light. He called you by name. The one who created the stars and calls them by name. And says, those are emblems of you, called you by name. Whatever name your mother and father gave you, God took that name on his lips and said, I am choosing you, I want you, I am calling you from death into life. He called you. And what Paul's praying for here is that you will know that God has called you by name. And that means you have a hope. No matter how desperate a state you feel like your soul is in this morning, no matter how messed up you think your life is, maybe you're just uh, thinking about going into a treatment center, maybe right now you think your marriage is on the verge of collapse, maybe right now you think you're utterly failed as a father, you hate Father's Day because you know you failed as a father or a father failed you and you feel resentment and bitterness and anger. You may feel like your whole life is a disaster. Listen to what God says, I've called you by name, there is a hope in my calling. And you know what happened when he said, Lazarus come forth? The dead man walked out. And then they took all the grave clothes out. Let me tell you what grace does. Grace calls you by name. You come from death to life. And then Jesus says, take all the grave clothes off. God is in the work right now of changing you, transforming you. And the, the whole city, 
The whole city was stirred by Jesus calling Lazarus. The whole city around you can be stirred because Jesus has called you. He has called you. Here's the second thing. It's not just the call of God. It's the mission of God. He says, I pray that your eyes will be opened to the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. Now, earlier in uh, chapter 1, he said, we have an inheritance in Christ. But I want you to notice here, he's not talking about your inheritance. He talks about the riches of Christ's inheritance in the saints. Christ's inheritance in the world. How can Jesus have an inheritance among us? Well, in the second psalm, there's a conversation between the father and the son. And the father says to the son, ask me and I will give the nations to you as your inheritance. Do you know what Jesus' inheritance is? The nations of the world. That means every single Christian is engaged in Jesus receiving his inheritance from his father. Think about that for just a second. The nations are his inheritance. Yesterday, we went down to the beach because I'm working desperately on my tan. And um, so we went to the beach for a few hours. We were down there, ran into uh, beloved uh, uh, SRC members while we were there. But while we were there watching the waves come in and enjoying all of that, all of a sudden, this rambunctious group of people, about 200 people just show up. They're just invading the beach. And they got guitars, and they're celebrating and rejoicing. And, and, and you could tell that's some kind of church group that's going on. It was a big Brazilian congregation. And they were celebrating and worshiping. And I can tell you, somebody got preaching in the middle of that crowd, and it was fervent. It was powerful. And I don't know all he was saying, because my Portuguese consists of nothing. But it was fervent and powerful, and there were a lot of amens. And then a line of people started out into the water. And they baptized person after person after person as all these new Brazilian Christians were being baptized into Jesus Christ. And we were just, everybody on the beach, whether we knew what was going on, we're just like, yeah, amen, hallelujah. Because Jesus is getting his inheritance. Do you know the nations are his inheritance? And there isn't a single believer and a single congregation that isn't called in some way to be involved in Jesus having his inheritance in the world. Jesus does not have a church with a mission. Jesus has a mission with a church. And your church, our church, is part of his mission in the world. He will have his inheritance in all nations. And many times churches simply turn inwards and they forget that Jesus is praying for the whole world to come in. And there isn't any place on the planet where Jesus' name will not be praised. From the rising of the sun to its setting, his name will be great in all the earth. And you and I have the privilege of being part of that. Here's a third thing he's praying for. He says, I'm praying that you will know the power of his resurrection. The power of God. The hope of God, the mission of God, and the power of God. He's praying that you and I will experience God's power in our lives. Now, I think a lot of times churches suffer from orthodusty. <laughs> what do I mean? Well, I think we, we mouth the words, but we don't really expect the Lord to move. 
Like if somebody said to you theologically, if you were orthodox in your theology, do you believe that God will move? Do you believe that God can move? Yes. Do you expect God to move? Do you expect God to move today? Well, I, I, I don't know if I should expect him to move today. You know, the great Baptist pastor Charles Spurgeon, whenever he would come into the pulpit at the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London, there were these great steps that led up to the pulpit. It was about 10 feet above contradiction as he preached to everybody inside that church. And he would walk up the steps, every single step, saying, I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit. Because he expected God to show up every single time he preached. He expected people to be converted. He expected God to show up in his saving glory. And brothers and sisters, that's what we should expect about every single time we gather. I believe in the Holy Spirit. If you say this morning, I believe in the Holy Spirit, I believe that Jesus was raised from the dead, look what Paul says here. I pray that you will be awakened to the surpassing greatness of his power towards us, towards us who believe, which is in accordance, he says, with the power that he used when he raised Jesus from the dead. The same power that God used to raise Jesus from the dead is the same power that can be in your, in your life, in your church, in your city, the very same power that raised Jesus from the dead can raise people from the dead all over South Florida. And there is no one outside the reach of God's grace. So why should we not expect great things of our God? And why should we not ask great things of our God? If the God who raised Jesus from the dead is with us, then why should we anticipate anything less than people coming to faith, people being filled with the Spirit, people being healed, surprising conversions, people you never thought could be converted, suddenly you're converted. Why should we not pray for and expect these great things? My friends, let's be done with orthodoxy. Let's call out to God to do great things. He is a great and mighty God. Let me take you back to South Bend, Indiana. <laughs> I did that witness weekend. We got the directions and found the church. And an amazing thing happened that weekend. It was a little Methodist church, a couple hundred people. Pastor did something very unusual Sunday morning. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go, his, you know, kind of ancient history on you now and talk about a technology which comes right after smoke signals. It's called a cassette player. Some of you don't know what a cassette tape is, okay? I'll just tell you, it's an ancient hieroglyphic form of Spotify, okay? That's really what that is. And he had this cassette player, and at the end of his sermon, he went down to this pew and he picked up this cassette player. I thought, what is he doing? And he took the cassette player and he set it up on the altar and he pushed play. Now, what he had done is pre-recorded an altar call for people to come to faith in Jesus. He hit play, and he went out and sat down. At the end of the pre-recorded invitation that he had made, he got up and came forward. And told the church, today, I'm becoming a Christian. I need to know not just that Jesus died on the cross but that Jesus died for me forgive me for being a pastor 
who didn't know Jesus. And I know Jesus forgives me and now calls me his son. Now, friends, I don't know how long you've been coming to church. Maybe this is the first time you've ever been in a church, and I'm so glad if you're here, and it's your very first time, maybe ever in any kind of church. But maybe, maybe you have a drug problem. You've been drugged to church since you were little. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and you grew up in all of this, right? You're like, yeah, I know all this stuff, but I'm, I, let me ask you, has the Holy Spirit opened your heart to know Jesus Christ. See, the truth is we need him. We are lost without him. We're dead without him. And we will be eternally lost if we don't turn to him. That's the, the saddest news you could ever hear. It's the worst predicament of every soul to go through this life and then into eternity without Jesus. But the good news is that you don't have to. That Jesus Christ died on the cross, and as Paul says here in Ephesians 1, he was raised from the dead, seated at the Father's right hand, has been given as head over the church, and you, through him, can actually know God. Have a relationship with God. Know that your sins are forgiven. Know that the Holy Spirit is real. He will be real in your life. He will guide you. He will direct you. You will know that God, just like he called Lazarus, called you, John, Terry, David, Susan, Marcus. He called you. And he did not do that. He did not make you and he did not call you to leave you alone. He has a great purpose for your life. Would you join me now in prayer, just silently, letting him underline that for you right now. Let's be quiet before the Lord. You talk to God, let him talk to you. Lord, in this quiet place, in this quiet moment, as you deal with hearts, as you open the eyes of our heart, give us the knowledge of God. For those who need to know Jesus, would you convince them of the work of his cross for them? For those of us who've grown to expect so little of a great God, would you awaken in us apostolic praying to ask great things of a great God, the kind of things that shake a city, and awaken a church. Lord, it's those kinds of things we long for you to do. Lord, what you have done before, do again. In Jesus' name, amen.